Hello and welcome to Turning Season Podcast, a regular dose of active hope in this great turning toward life-honoring, life-sustaining ways of being human, bringing you deep conversations with people who are rising to their own unique roles in this worldwide adventure. This show is for every one of you who's aware of our multiple crises, feels your love for life on Earth, and is finding your way to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, working for a life-honoring present, even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects. I practice acupuncture, herbal medicine, and dream work. I believe in the power of conversation, and it does me so much good to have these talks with people who are throwing their weight into the momentum of this turning. My guest today, Osprey Oriel Lake, has just published a new book that I wholeheartedly recommend. It's called The Story is in Our Bones, How Worldviews and Climate Justice Can Remake a World in Crisis. Osprey weaves together ecological, mythical, political, and cultural understandings, and she shares from her experiences working with global leaders, systems thinkers, climate justice activists, and indigenous communities. I found great beauty in the way she's calling forth historical memory of who we as human beings are in the Earth's lineage, of who we can be, that will allow us to transform the interlocking crises we find ourselves in right now. Our conversation was nothing but highlights for me, so rather than preview any key points, I'm going to share a little more about Osprey's background, and then get right into the conversation so you can hear for yourself. As founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, We Can, Osprey is participating in a truly amazing breadth of projects. She works internationally with grassroots, BIPOC and Indigenous leaders, policymakers, and diverse coalitions to build climate justice, resilient communities, and a just transition to a decentralized, democratized, clean energy future. She sits on the Executive Committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and on the Steering Committee for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Osprey's writing about climate justice, relationships with nature, women in leadership, and other topics has been featured in The Guardian, Earth Island Journal, The Ecologist, Ms. Magazine, and many other publications. Osprey holds an M.A. in Culture and Environmental Studies from Holy Names University in Oakland and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area on Coast Miwok lands. Lastly, before we jump in, I want to read you the words that our beloved elder, activist, scholar, and root teacher of the work that reconnects, Joanna Macy, had to say about Osprey's new book. These pages summon from our bones our commitment to defend this living earth. I bow to Osprey in deepest respect and gratitude for her years of inspired activism and this brilliant book. I'm with Joanna on this as on so many things. All right, here's my conversation with Osprey Oriel Lake. Enjoy. Welcome, Osprey. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's really an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I just love your new book. I feel like it is of the utmost importance and full of beauty, and I'm really grateful to have read it and to be able to draw more people's attention to it and to get to hear a little bit more directly 
from you today. So we'll start as we like to do with these open sentences from Joanna Macy. I'll invite you to finish these sentences, however you're moved to. The first one is, some things I love about being alive in earth are. Mm, such a great question. I love being in the redwoods. Uh, I grew up on the Mendocino coast of California and had the great honor of living amongst the redwood trees and hiking um, there in those ancient, ancient beings. Uh, so the redwood trees are really important to me. It's something I love about being on earth. Um, I, you know, I could go on and on about nature. Um, and also I think I love the, the, the beauty of which I see people right now in incredibly difficult challenges um, between uh, wars breaking out, between the climate crisis, environmental degradation, and, you know, racial tensions and discriminations and oppressions. The fact that humanity continues to shine hope and continue to collectively work together to bring healing to ourselves and the earth is something that really, really moves me um, and seems so poignant at this time. Mm, beautiful. I love that with you. And how about when I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is? Uh, I guess that goes hand in hand with that, that comment that there is just so much um, violence and destruction and um, the fact that uh, I do believe in the good spirit of humanity and our well-being, and yet um, we are inundated with you know generations of historical trauma, all of us in different ways, depending on our cultural background, our sexual orientation, where we live, every aspect of who we are in our identities. It's a time where all of this is being challenged and systemic oppressions are so, uh, I would say, proliferating, unfortunately. And as a result, I think the heartbreak and grief that I know I experience every day and so many of my friends and colleagues is sometimes feels really insurmountable to be able to um, be able to metabolize and to hold that grief and, and work our way through it and the outrage as well, and how um, we, we need to really have the courage and the endurance to unpack a lot of these systemic oppressions from colonization to racism to misogyny, um, our economic frameworks, and really have the wherewithal to um, be willing to go into uncomfortable conversations within ourselves and others to bring light to these very difficult, difficult times. And so what breaks my heart is when we do not treat these um, historical traumas and issues with the attention they need. And so they just continue to go on and on in endless cycles of violence and destruction. And it really breaks my heart because it's so beautiful to be with our family, 
with um, love and relationship with each other and relationship with the land. And we all know that that is the world we're trying to birth into being. And it breaks my heart that uh, we're not able to slow down enough often to really address root causes to then get to the deeper healing we know is possible. Mm, yes, thank you. Ah, and I know you're, you've been present for so many examples of everything you're talking about in terms of, of witnessing how those cycles are continuing in heartbreaking and ways that make us outraged and also the healing and the, the amazing impulse to keep trying and to birth something more beautiful and life-sustaining and honoring of all peoples into being. So I love having this sense of what you're feeling around it and what draws you forward and also what breaks your heart. And I'd like to see if there are any stories or examples that you want to share with us. You have so many in the book. And if I could give a little framing and then maybe ask you to speak to each of the three dimensions of the great turning, because I see that we can is very much working in, in all three dimensions. I'll just name those. And then whatever you'd like to share of examples from those three dimensions would be wonderful. So from Joanna Macy's teachings, we talk about the three stories of our time that are all playing out simultaneously right now. We're all living in the story of business as usual, where the central plot is still getting ahead, uh, making money, extraction, growth. And then there's the story of the great unraveling where we see the falling apart of social and ecological systems. And the third story is the great turning where we can see that we're all partaking in this adventure together, turning toward a life-sustaining and life-honoring society. And within that great turning, we talk about three different dimensions, one being holding actions to protect, to slow down damage or to stop harm, and then life-sustaining systems, building life-sustaining, or sometimes we call them Gaian systems, after the, the idea of the planet as a living body, Gaia, and then shifts in consciousness, where we really change our minds about what it means to be here and how we keep going with life-sustaining systems. So those are the three dimensions, um, the holding actions, building life-sustaining systems, or keeping them alive where they are still in intact, and shifts in consciousness. So maybe we can take one at a time. I just want listeners to get to hear some of your experiences with these. Would you talk to us about WeCan's work and some of the people you've worked with around the world in holding actions? Yeah, and and just to also honor Joanna Macy, who is so extraordinary, and I really love that. Um, you know, you're basing your your podcast and your narrative and bring forward her work. Um, she's an incredible mentor to many of us. And I just really honor her so much and had the wonderful opportunity very recently to, to have some time with her and just really want to respect and honor her work in the world. So thank you for, for bringing her forward in all the things that you're doing. Um, so withholding actions at the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network at WeCan, uh, we do, as you mentioned, sort of have a holistic approach to a lot of our campaigns and projects and programs and, um, you know, really think on the ground work in communities is important as well as advocacy 
um, in spaces like the United Nations uh, climate talks or um, in many other uh, international forums. Uh, we also work with financial institutions to really advocate for them to move their funds out of harmful projects into uh, renewable energy, as an example. So there's a wide range of work that we're doing. But in terms of the holding actions, um, what comes to mind is, um, you know, perhaps an, an, an example many of your listeners can relate to um, is the Indigenous-led action at Standing Rock to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, Weekend was on the ground there in and out throughout uh, the, the entire time of that, uh, the camps that were held there to um, stand against uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline um, and to be part of the network of water protectors um, and learn so much from the Indigenous women leaders there and how much they really are and were the backbone of a lot of these movements to protect water. And I do think it's very important that we do nonviolent direct action. I think it's really important for people to gather in this way to build power. And we're at a point where we need to put our bodies on the line at different times. And those risks are different for everyone. It's not the same for, as an example, a white person as an indigenous person or a black or brown person to put their body on the line due to, you know, structural racism in the United States and also um, racism in countries all over the world. So, you know, I say that very delicately because not everyone needs to participate in direct actions and not everyone is experiencing the same risks in doing so. Um, that said, I think it's, it's a very essential part of the transformation we're in is that um, while we do, in fact, meet with government agencies, uh, we do advocate um, at the federal and global level for uh, indigenous rights or to stop harmful fossil fuel extraction projects or stop deforestation in different regions in the Amazon or the DR Congo where we work. All of that is absolutely essential, but it's an ecosystem of things that need to happen to create change. We have to come at it from a lot of angles and we all can enter it in different ways and we all have different callings, but each of the parts of the ecosystem create successful campaigns and outcomes and one of them is direct action. And so I do think that these nonviolent direct action campaigns are important so people can collectively see um, how much we care about an issue, how important it is, and you know, just to also... Um, really lift up and, and honor a lot of the frontline defenders that we support, um, as an example, in uh, the Latin American region that, um, you know, experience huge violence for standing up for land defense or protecting the Amazon rainforest where, you know, you might not just get arrested or have felony charges put against you, but also we know that the um, through Global Witness and other organizations who monitor that the rate of um, killings of land defenders in Latin America is only increasing as people stand up more for the water, for their land, and to stop um, extractive practices in their territory. So, you know, this, this, this issue of standing up and putting our bodies on their line is, um, you know, something I truly believe in, but I also want to note that it is increasingly becoming more dangerous um, in not only in other countries, but also in the United States as well. The risk is becoming higher and higher. And I think as we see 
more and more clash with the need to 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 look at planetary boundaries and what's happening with quote unquote natural resources, meaning our water, our food, our land, our forests. That um, this issue is going to continue to to raise itself up, and that we're going to have to really support land defenders ever more and really understand the role of land defense and. You know, to me, Standing Rock was such a powerful example of what happens in the collective energy when we all stand behind what we believe in and a lot of transformation and consciousness that was raised and the power that Indigenous people shared with all of us through their incredible courage um, in that action, I think still is rippling out, um, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Yeah, thank you. I think I I want to stay here with holding actions for a moment. We'll we'll go to the other two dimensions in a moment, but I think what you're talking about around not just the direct actions themselves, the holding actions to protect the land, the water, the air, each other, our bodies, animals, forests, but also to protect the people who are doing the defending feels more and more urgent, not just feels. I mean, you have these heartbreaking statistics talk about heartbreak and outrage in the book about the number of murders of land defenders and that we probably don't even know about all of them, but just the ones we do know about, that it's increasing each year, the number of people who, especially indigenous people protecting land and water and their families are being killed. And so let's talk a little bit more about that and what is possible to protect them more, how to be more involved in standing up for the the safety of especially these indigenous land defenders. Um, you, maybe you can speak especially to Latin America. Yeah. And I, and I go into to some stories in the book about this, but I think, you know, we need to realize, you know, as I, I was mentioning earlier on, you know, the intersectionality of our movements and uh, the struggles that frontline communities are facing um, and that, you know, the, the extractive economy uh, is barreling on business as usual, as you mentioned before. And, you know, this creates enormous tension because um, in, in the situation of uh, Latin America as an ex- as an example, but it's also true globally. Um, we see that eighty percent, eighty percent of all the biodiversity left on Earth, meaning our forests, our water, the lands, the animals, the plants, you know, the beauty of this glorious planet. Eighty percent of that biodiversity is in the lands and hands and stewarded by indigenous peoples. And something that a lot of people don't know. Um, how important the role of Indigenous peoples are because of their worldview and how they are relating to their lands um, that I think we all have so much to learn from. And so it it also puts them directly in the firing line because as they work to protect their territories and lands, which they have the right to do, and we should be respecting Indigenous rights and territorial demarcations, um, which often get violated, um, indigenous people are forced more and more to to put their bodies on the line to protect the Amazon rainforest, as an example, but also, you know, waters all over the world, forests all over the world, and so I think we need specific attention to understanding indigenous rights. Uh, there is a Universal Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, that is, you know, something that the United Nations holds up as international uh, law. 
that is violated all of the time. So I mentioned that because I think it's important to also sort of have a foundation in the legal standing that uniquely Indigenous peoples have. We all have human rights. There is a universal declaration on human rights, but there's specific rights to for Indigenous peoples. And there's a reason for that. Um, and, and it has a lot to do with the relationship with the land. And within that, there's something called free, prior, and informed consent, FPIC, free, prior, and informed consent, that we often use in a lot of our advocacy that I think is a really good tool as we're working to defend the defenders of the land, which is that Indigenous peoples have the right to free, prior, and informed consent about what happens in their lands and their territories or forests. And um, often that is violated, but they have the right to say no and not give consent for extractive projects in their lands. And so this often becomes a point of conflict because they have said no to, you know, extractive industries or the government and projects still will proceed. And that forces them to put their bodies on the line to protect their land. And, um, you know, then they are subjected to corporations or governments um, and other entities, you know, attacking them for their land defense. Um, and so I think it's really important that we have a legal understanding of what their rights are so that we can all stand up for those rights. That's one venue and avenue of protection. I think, you know, awareness that this is going on. And I think also our collective, you know, global community responsibility to understand that, you know, when we're talking, you know, about the Amazon rainforest as an example, or, you know, the waters that people have been protecting here in the United States, which often um, these waterways are protected first and foremost by Indigenous peoples leading the way, um, that we all have a responsibility to these land defenders. I mean, Yes, they're protecting their own territories, which they have the right to do, but it really is for all of us. We all depend on freshwater. We all depend on the Amazon rainforest for how it is a major part of how we have balance in our climate and our uh, and the the rains that come to uh, many different regions of the world. And you know, same when we work in the Democratic Republic of Congo and protecting forests there, you know, all of these forests are key to our survival collectively. So when we think about land defense and the people putting their bodies on the line, I think it's really important to personalize it and realize it's not just a group of indigenous people over there fighting for their little corner of the world. You know, as we know, all of our ecosystems, the water, the forest, the air, um, the climate is all connected. And so I think the more that we can personalize and realize our relationship to the land defenders, um, then they are not isolated from all of our collective support. Um, the the other thing I wanted to mention, you know, that I think is really an interesting development in the Latin American Caribbean region, which is the LAC region, is a relatively new multilateral agreement that applies to the LAC region called the Escazu Agreement. And again, I mentioned this in the book, and people can also look it up online. And it's very interesting because it's one of the few, um, and maybe there's no others that I know of exactly, that uh, combine both uh, human rights with environmental law. And so it is a really great new mechanism that we can utilize. It's just being developed now um, around how we can protect land defenders and that they can have legal rights um, within their human rights to land defense. And so uh, we can has a campaign now to both 
advocate with governments um, in the LAC region to ensure that the Escazu Agreement is implemented in a way that really will protect, particularly for us, women land defenders, but also that um, a lot of frontline Indigenous women um, are aware that they have this legal tool that they can utilize. And so how can it get out into communities that are, you know, deep into the jungle or something that they actually have this mechanism that they can use for their own land defense and protection if they're under attack? So I think these are just some tools and things, but um, I think for people um, as an entry point, I think it's just really important to, to understand that the forests and the land and the water being protected by frontline communities who are putting their bodies on the line, and we all have a responsibility to care for them and to, to learn about the struggle. Thank you. That's so important. And I'm really glad that you highlighted how much, you know, the forests, the Amazon and the DR Congo all over the world are impacting weather and climate everywhere. And we're all on one living body. It's all connected and there's not, there's no such thing as just over there, right? And and so remembering, as you said, 80% of biodiversity is in the hands of indigenous peoples and their work to defend what is still thriving, the ecosystems that are still thriving is not about, it's not about us thinking, oh, well, we want them to get to do that. We want them to get to have that. But it's it, to think about it much more in a collective sense that this is a a bigger we and an us, um, and that the role that indigenous communities are playing in that frontline defense is something that that really helps take care of all of us. So I will uh, provide some links for people to learn more about the Escazu Agreement, and of course recommend again that everyone read about it in your book because it's it's so important. So let's, I, actually, I want to go into shifts in consciousness because that is a central point that you're making in your book is how important our worldviews are. And some of what you've spoken to already helps us shift our consciousness. But what are the ways, some of the ways that we need to think differently, see ourselves differently if we're going to make any of these changes last, and I'll just reference something Joanna Macy has said again here that I think of often, which when she was beginning her deeper study of the terrible problem of nuclear waste and having starting to realize that we're talking about thousands of generations into the future, um, the, her shift, she shifted her focus from this sense of real urgency which we have understandably with a lot of activism of, you know, this sense of how fast can we do this? The clock is ticking. How fast can I get this done to thoughts of how long can I make this last? And so I, I offer that up as a frame for what the shifts in consciousness are about and how long can we make the change that we're working toward right now last? And how do we do that? Yeah, it's a it's a really uh, great question, and um, you know, I I opened my book actually with um, sort of a dialogue about time, you know, and how we need to understand time differently because we are in a time riddle in which physics dictates that you know we we understand the climate crisis is barreling down on us, and scientists are letting us know that, and also. You know, I'm here in California and experience, you know, these incredible fire seasons and other people are in regions where there's flooding. I mean, we don't even, yes, we need to, of course, base all of our understanding on science, but we are also 
deeply all experiencing the impact of of how fast these climate crises are escalating. And so, um, you know, we are feeling the urgency of the time in our body and our bones. It's happening, seeing and experiencing, you know, incredible tragedies and harm and death because of of uh, human activity. And at the same time, <laughs> being in a state of frantic um, hecticness is um, really not the right foundation in which we need to address the root causes and systemic change, which will then grow long-term solutions. So, you know, every day at weekend, of course, we are literally putting out fires every day. I mean, we work, you know, um, reforesting, uh, stopping fossil fuel pipelines from going through. So we're dealing with, you know, crises, real-time situations. And I completely believe in that because we can stop a lot of harm and protect a lot of areas with immediate action and advocacy. At the same time, we try to really take the view that we have to have a systems approach because without addressing root causes, then we continue these cycles of violence and harm to each other and the earth. And so this is where the, the consciousness piece that you're talking about really comes in. And, um, you know, what I've really come to learn is that the current dominant social mindsets and systems are really incapable of addressing the poly crisis that we're in or really providing a flourishing way ahead. So, um, you know, it, it's just, I think, really important to note that the, the politics of the moment and the social conditions are not consistent with the change needed. And so we're in that paradox um, and so this is why I really uh, emphasize worldviews and how vital it is um, into entering new thresholds of living that we have to really understand our worldviews. Um, otherwise, you know, we, we can't get to a new way of living. And I think some worldviews need, you know, radical dismantling. Um, you know, colonization, racism, patriarchy, capitalism, they need radical dismantling and reimagining um, and reconfiguring. And there are other worldviews that actually need to be remembered or rescued. You know, our, our understanding of um, our pre-colonial, pre-patriarchal understanding of relationships to the land uh, for those of us who are not immediately in intact indigenous cultures. So, um, there's bo both a dismantling and a remembering of worldviews that I think are really important. And so I think that, you know, like what we're trying to do is to transform oppressive systems and processes and transform them into more thriving cultural activities and build a new story from this. And it means sort of disentangling ourselves from a colonial and patriarchal stronghold while we're building out our new world. And within this context, I think it's really important to understand that there cannot be any longer this idea of throwaway people, throwaway lands, throwaway species. You know, instead, we are really working to weave life-enhancing worldviews of an animate living earth, new ways of being and thinking, you know, into, into our project and narratives and programs. And, you know, I think more concisely, it's just like the core focus is a transition from this extractive paradigm that we've been talking about of exploitation, hyper-individualism and, and white supremacy and supremacy over the earth, you know, these, these narratives that we've been living in and, and transitioning to uh, a worldview of relationship 
earth consciousness, understanding of respect for all of life, each other, um, reciprocity, you know, that we are here to live in a reciprocal relationship with the earth, restoring the harms that we've done and what are reparations and how do we lift up these ideas of living in harmony with nature. And, and I would also say that, you know, this worldview is, is, is already happening. I mean, I see it every day in so many of the beautiful projects we do, you know, just to name one or two, you know, right now in the DR Congo, we've been working for eight years with uh, Nima Namandu, who's this incredible leader and this whole area in the Atombe rainforest in the Congo basin was completely, you know, decimated through slash and burn techniques. And, um, over the last years, we have brought together 500 women who are now reforesting this area. And as a result, um, 25% of the trees that we're growing are going back for human use. And 75% of the trees are to rewild this, this decimated area. And now that we've been in this project long enough, um, most of the communities in the area are not no longer um, getting their needs of food and medicine and timber from the old growth forest. So while we're reforesting this area, we're also protecting 1.6 million acres of old growth forest, which of course is helping the climate and biodiversity. <clears throat> and I mentioned this project because it's just very inspiring to see, you know, what small grassroots groups can do um, with this with this idea of, you know, how do we live in a different way in a relationship with nature where we're enhancing the land, protecting biodiversity, and also transforming. Uh, our cultural systems, because um, on top of everything I just said, uh, in the DR Congo, where these women live, it's one of the most violent places in the world for women because of uh, a lot of conflict in the country, and also very heavy patriarchal uh, cultural configurations. And so through these women uh, successfully planting trees, bringing all of the products from the trees to their communities, it's really changed their social status. And so it's also bringing a lot of balance and peace to the region and protection for women from the violence that has been perpetuated against them. So I think that when we think of things really holistically with the, these different ideas about how to live with each other in the land and how do we actually create projects and programs and practical application of these worldviews is, is when we can really see the transformation that we need. Wow, that's all fantastic points and such a great story about what's happening in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I mean, talk about a holistic, um, holistic work there. That's really beautiful to hear about. And I love your term life enhancing. It's like beyond the mere hope of, you know, can we be life sustaining, but let's go for life enhancing, which we know many indigenous peoples for many millennia have been life enhancing to not only the humans, but the more than human world around them. So I, I like that phrase. I, I'm going to dare to hope life enhancing society. So you're, you're starting to move us into the, the third dimension there of life sustaining systems, Gaian systems. But I want to hang back here for a moment in the worldview question, because there was something that caught my attention in the book you were sharing about the Kausak Sacha, the Living Forest Declaration, which I believe was drafted in Ecuador. You can correct me on that if I missed it. But you you said something about not the women there not wanting to use the colonially defined idea of conservation 
of nature. And I was wondering if you want, would speak to that just a little bit about a different worldview that doesn't look at um, protecting nature as a sort of a conservation idea. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And just as a as a little bit of background, uh, just to say that the uh, the Sariaco people are living in the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest and are just amazing people that have been resisting and responding to colonial threats with incredible wisdom and ferocity for a very long time. And uh, they, they are Quichua people, and they have worked for decades to develop, um, as you mentioned, the Living Forest Declaration, which is Kausaksacha, and it aims to protect and defend their traditional lands from extraction and the onslaught of colonization. And I think what's really interesting is that um, they have uh, such powerful leadership and um, they, they, the Quechua people of Syriaco are, are known as the Pueblo de Medio Dia, um, which means uh, people of the zenith. And I really love that because it acknowledges um, their ancestral prophecy stating that during a time of difficulty, which clearly we're in right now, the Sariaco would be a center of strength for territorial, cultural, and spiritual defense, sort of like a beacon of light, um, as powerful as the noonday sun, um, the zenith reference. And so they um, have developed this living force declaration as a way to demonstrate um, from a indigenous perspective, what does it mean to care for the forest? Because, you know, all these years later, you know, every, um, you know, whether it's a government or environmental organizations um, or, um, you know, different different systems of of folks that have come in to to share how we should manage forests um, have not really looked to indigenous people who have been maintaining these forests from time immemorial in their territories. And so um, the Quechua leaders have explained to me, you know, that their goal of the Living Forest Declaration is to attain national and international recognition of a new legal category for the permanent protection of indigenous lands. And rather than a worldview that only sees nature as a resource to be used, the declaration recognizes the intrinsic physical and spiritual relationship between the peoples of the living forest and all the beings that inhabit and compose the forest. So I really love that because it, it includes a physical and spiritual relationship. Um, so Kausak Sacha, is, is a vision, it's a worldview, a strategy, um, presenting all at once an ecological, political, cultural, spiritual, and economic framework. So very, very holistic. And, and it shows really how to live in a healthy and equitable world beyond conventional capitalistic views of progress, developing conservation. So it's just has been an incredible learning for me to to um, learn about Kausak Satcha, I was really fortunate in July 2018 uh, when, um, even though Kausak Satcha has been developed for many, many years, there was a, a formal launching of the Living Force Declaration uh, in the capital city, Quito, in Ecuador, as an inauguration, uh, a formal inauguration, inauguration to present this proposal to the Ecuadorian government. 
and international organizations and dignitaries. So I was very, very honored to be there with uh, other international allies to to show um, you know international support to this vision and demands set forth by by the Kalsakcha leaders. And of course, they're thinking about it for their territories in Ecuador, but they also want to share this view of the Ling Forest with with other indigenous peoples, you know, for their own adoption of it in their own way. Um, and uh, I would just say that it also embodies countless generations of ancestral knowledge um, and the vision of the people of Sereaco. So beautiful. I'm, I just feel, I feel really grateful that this is happening and to the Sariaku people for their work and heart in it and you for sharing the story and helping spread it. I'm, I am feeling moved to learn more about the declaration and keep supporting what's happening there. So thank you for that. And let's talk a little bit about life-sustaining or even life-enhancing systems and if I could kind of give a little context or framing for that question too, if you want to speak to this, I think we have examples of life enhancing ways of organizing human life um, in many different ways in many different places. And we also have this completely unprecedented situation of, you know, the number of humans on the planet, the amount of our ecosystems that have been degraded, the planetary boundaries, as you've mentioned, several of which it looks like we've crossed already. So the idea of going back, some people, sometimes people talk about, well, what do you want us to do? Go back, you know, and, and I don't even think that's really an option, um, let alone, is it what we're, what we're asking for, but nor do we want to keep making what has been defined as progress so far. Um, and I feel like you've already given us so many examples of how there's an interweaving of ancient indigenous wisdom with very current, you know, communication and transportation technologies and working within legal systems and advocacy in terms of policymaking, right? So it's weaving together. But I, I just wanted to raise that idea of going back versus progress, if that's something you want to speak to in this idea of nurturing and remembering and creating new life-sustaining systems? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really wonderful question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we, I don't think there's anything such thing as going back, <laughs> but, um, I do think that there is a very personal and collective, um, need to understand when any of us can go back to our own ancestors and find that time when they were indigenous to a place and also understood how to live with the land in balance. And I think that it's not something easily done. I say that, you know, very, very delicately because most of us are living on stolen indigenous land. Most of us are not in our homelands. Um, some people have no idea where their ancestors are even from. So that's why I say it's a, it's a complex issue to be handled very delicately. And at the same time, you know, I've done a lot of my own research. I know many people have on their own to, to really the going back is, is also about going forward fully. 
So when I go back to research my ancestors or understand how did they live with the land um, in a different way with with an animate worldview, um, a deeper understanding of the relationship of reciprocity with the land, it actually helps me stand in the present very differently because then I can connect very personally to those practices and those worldviews and those understandings. And I think this is very tied into how we also decolonize ourselves, but also uh, have a way to bring healing to a lot of trauma and violence. Because I think a lot of modern day people that are are not connected to their indigenous ancestry as are as so many indigenous peoples are, um, there there is this lack of understanding about um, our relationship to the land and not coming from a perspective as an example of dominion over nature or nature as resource only. And um, that without that, I think that there's really this um, deep wound and uh, orphanage that many people feel that they don't even maybe know how to articulate. And I think it creates a lot of dangerous conditions um, to that can lead to um, a loss of deep identity with being a human being, belonging, that then leads to other sorts of disruption from white supremacy to over-consumerism. And a lot of the ails in our society, um, not all of them, I think it's too simplistic to, to reduce things, but I think that there's a component of the polycrisis that we're in that really has to do with the fact that we are not connected in a healthy way to our past and not connected enough to going back far enough to pre-colonized, pre-patriarchal conditions and remembering the beauty of um, our ancestors when they were in ceremony with the land, when they were in right relationship with the land and within the web of life and within the context of a healthy cosmology. And without that narrative and story, uh, I think that uh, we try to build new um, community and new narratives on top of soil that's still not quite healthy. And so I think it's really important that we understand why are we looking to the past, not to like go back there, but to regenerate, remember, to bring forward those healthy relationships, those healthy practices, and understand that they're very personal to each of us, because we certainly don't want to also perpetuate cultural appropriation from Indigenous peoples, um, or, you know, sort of always be at a loss of understanding um, our place, no matter what our ancestry is, in um, being connected to the web of life. And so I think that's a part of it that, that um, has to do with how we, we are dealing with, with, with the past. And then at a very, very practical level, that was sort of more, more uh, uh, philosophical and spiritual angle, but, you know, at a very practical level, I think that um, part of, you know, the heartbreak of this time and people's orphanage from the land does generate more consumerism to fill ourselves up. And that, um, you know, this, this economic framework based on endless material growth um, and this extractive economy, you know, known by capitalism, but has had other names in other times, you know, this idea that we have to have more and more and more and more and consume more and more and more, and we have to have profit more and more and more and more, instead of living more simply, um, not consuming so much, 
finding other ways of feeling progress and identity and experiencing well-being and experiencing that you know value um, not placed on material growth or possessions and consuming is a big transformation for many people in our modern society where that is what is valued is you know how much wealth one has how much material growth we we base our personal lives or or our countries on um, GDP as an example. And so to change that framework, we have to have a very different entry point and different set of values. And I think that's part of it is if we get connected to the land and understand the planetary boundaries and understand again that we're part of the web of life, it really reframes what's important, what's valued. And insofar as we don't address that, then we continue to to really destroy the earth, endlessly extracting. Because even if magically we snapped our fingers and we ended the climate crisis tomorrow, if we don't change our thinking, then we're just going to consume in other ways. Um, and, and so this is why we have to really get at the root causes and understand you know, why our identity and understanding who we are in relation to the land is equally important to you know, the, the solutions that, that are at hand that, of course, very practically will help. But ultimately, we also have to change ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you really highlighted that sense of identity and belonging again, because I do think that's, you know, at the heart. It's not, as you said, the only thing at the heart of what's going on, but it's there. And what we what we turn to and what we learn to turn to, to fill that, that sense of need is very much a part of this. I'll refer listeners also to episode 29 when I talked with Max Wilbert that, you know, we, we really need to burst these bubbles, the idea that we can just change the technology we use to live just the way that we do now, that we're we're really undermining our ability to live on this planet in many ways, not just by burning fossil fuels. And and the last episode with Alpha Low also where we talked about the water system. So I think I think that it does trace back to this really actually beautiful and and fulfilling personal work too about finding a sense of belonging here in earth, right? And a healthy relationship to the past. I love the way you described that, that value of going back. So thank you for all of that. I want to ask you about supporting the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. And of course, I'm going to link to where listeners can buy your book, which I highly, highly recommend. And so, yeah, if there's anything else you want to share before we close, and if you would share about supporting the work of We Can, I'd love to hear that. Thank you so much. Well, people can visit our website at www.wecan, W-E-C-A-N, and then the word international spelled out.org. So www.wecaninternational.org and learn about our different programs as a resource for people. We also have on our website something called Women Speak, which is a curated space where we're cultivating literally now thousands of stories by and about women who are very inspiring with um, solutions in 14 different category areas from everything from women in forests to women in climate policy to women in water to indigenous rights to uh, climate finance. Um, all these different arenas um, where you know we can really get inspired by the work that is going on. Um, an area that we didn't touch upon and is something we're very engaged in is a lot of work to, you know, prevent a lot of fossil fuel extraction and expansion. And we're really poised both um, as we advocate with governments to stop 
fossil fuel extraction and fossil fuel expansion. We are also simultaneously going to financial institutions, meaning banks, asset management firms, insurance companies, and really pushing them to divest and move their their funds out of the fossil fuel sector and into clean, renewable, regenerative energy. And I think this is this is the moment. I mean, nature, Mother Earth is clearly telling us we've got to get off this fossil fuel economy. And this means we really need for governments to strongly, strongly um, implement regulation that they're not doing uh, every year weekend goes to the climate talks and we bring frontline women leaders to advocate, um, you know, for their lands, for their issues. But, you know, one of the big focuses is always demanding from governments that we've got to get off this fossil fuel economy and uh, also doing the same thing, um, bringing delegations to meet with financial institutions to share with them the harms that are going on because of harmful projects in communities. And in this context, I wanted to mention that I'm really honored to be on the uh, Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty, which is something that you know people are welcome to look up. Um, it's in the book, but it's also um, can be found um, on the internet. And it's basically a complement to the Paris Climate Agreement, which is really a way for there to be a mechanism for all countries to come up with a collective agreement, a treaty, in other words, uh, to to get off of fossil fuels, to stop the expansion and extraction of fossil fuels. And I think it's essential that we have this mechanism because the Paris Climate Agreement um, really does not deal with the supply end of fossil fuels. It talks a lot about, um, you know, how we're going to deal with carbon emission reductions, which is very important, but it's not enough. And so I really wanted to highlight the work of the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty. And then one other piece of work that I think is very, very important Weekend is on the executive committee, and I have been for many years, of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature. And I think the framework of rights of nature is absolutely critical because we have, um, as we've been talking about um, in, in this program, in our conversation today around um, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the Universal Declaration on Indigenous Peoples' Rights also, but also um, we need to talk about nature's rights. Because right now uh, in the world, we do not have a way to have rivers or um, the ocean or the forests be represented in a court of law. It's always under the ownership of humans, meaning that nature as viewed as property. And this is also something that has to really be something that we restructure and uh, dismantle because it's critical that we start understanding in our legal courts of law, that nature has rights. And it's a really exciting framework. And um, it's the rights of nature movement actually is one of the fastest growing movements in the world right now. Um, and speaking of Ecuador, Ecuador is the first country in the world in 2008 to put rights of nature into their constitution. And since then, there are, you know, like 30 countries now involved with different forms of uh, implementing rights of nature in their country to protect rivers, to protect forests, um, and different ecosystems. So it's really exciting work because it, it really means that nature has a right to 
thrive and grow and that um, it is protected from human activity. And I think putting nature and the earth in the center of the conversation right now is absolutely vital. So I just wanted to mention um, both the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, as well as rights of nature as very practical solutions that are really within the framework of this new worldview that we're talking about. That's great. Thank you for mentioning both of those. I'll look for direct links on those also on your website. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being such a great conversation partner. Oh, thank you. I loved this conversation. And thank you so much for listening. Come to the show notes at turningseason.com episode 38 for links to order Osprey's book, The Story is in Our Bones, and links to learn more about the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, We Can, and the projects Osprey mentioned. While you're there at turningseason.com, you can sign up to get newsletter updates if you'd like to hear as soon as the next episode is released. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.